it's hard to see into these schools because they keep it so guarded. It's almost like a secret. But from the estimates, there's about 60,000 children in District 75 in New York City that don't see any other children throughout the day. So that's as segregated as you can get. Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of The Greatest Stories Never Told. I'm Danny Jordan, your host, thrilled for another exciting conversation. If you have been with us since the beginning, thank you so much for coming back week over week. Uh, If you are new to the show, welcome. Thrilled to have you. Make sure you smash that subscribe button, as all the cool kids are saying. I don't know if they're saying that anymore or if me saying it has all of a sudden made it not cool anymore. Anyway, whatever you do, smash, tap, click, whatever you're into, bop it. If you're a 90s kid, you totally get that joke. Uh, Hit that subscribe button. That way uh, you get the alerts for all of the new episodes that will be coming out. And we do release new episodes every single Monday. Today is episode number six. And this one, this one is a very uh, personal uh, episode for me in the sense that our guest today is a gentleman by the name of Olivier Bernier. And Olivier is the father of a child with a disability. And if you are familiar with me, if you've listened to past episodes of this show, you know that I am also an individual, also a dad of a child with a disability. What's really cool about Olivier being on the show is that a while back, I wanted to start this show. And it's a show I've been wanting to do for years and years and years, but life kept getting in the way. And then finally, I just had this thought. I was like, I I think I'm ready. I put it out into the universe. I said, I want to do this show. I've been wanting to do it for so long. And then lo and behold, I got a random pitch email from a publicist pitching Olivier to me to be a guest on anything, not necessarily this show, but just anything. And I took that as a sign from the universe that it was meant to be. And Olivier really was the first interview that I did for the greatest stories never told. And we're gonna share that conversation with you today. A little backstory on Olivier. Olivier is an award-winning director who lives and breathes to tell stories that explore the human condition. Olivier is part American, part Quebecois. Hopefully I get that right. I took Spanish in school and not French, but uh, Olivier is also the co-founder and creative director of the production company Rota 6 Films. They are a production company that specializes in documentary and commercial films. Olivier has had the honor over the years of having many of his films regularly screened at many festivals, including winning the Grand Jury Prize at Slamdance, opening night at the Human Rights Watch Film Festival, Montreal World Film Festival, the list goes on and on and on. And the film that we are going to speak specifically about today on the show is a film film that uh, Olivier directed and is featured in alongside his wife and his son, Emilio, and that film is called Forget Me Not. In short, Forget Me Not intimately documents a family's fight to have their son with Down syndrome included in the country's most segregated school system. That school system, New York City public school system. Propelled forward by other struggles and successes, Forget Me Not offers a rare look at what a truly inclusive education can look like and how it can lead to a more inclusive society so that everyone has the opportunity to achieve their full potential. The conversation that we have in this episode is very raw, it's very real, it's full of heart, and I am so grateful to Olivier for being so honest and open with me in our conversation. I'm so excited for you all to listen in. If you want to learn more about his film, Forget Me Not, please go to forgetmenotdocumentary.com. That's where you can find out where to stream it, and I highly suggest you watch it, whether you have a child with a disability or not. I think the story, the journey that Olivier and his family go through is one that that we can all learn from. So please 
check that out. You can also follow them on Instagram at ForgetMeNotDocumentary. You can also follow us on social media at NeverToldPod. And you can find me on Instagram at Danny Jordan. I really enjoy connecting with you all and finding out what you think of our show. Speaking of the show, let's get to our conversation with my new friend, Olivier Bernier. Olivier, it is such a pleasure to meet you. Thanks for taking the time to jump on here with Greatest Stories Never Told. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. You're not going to say, you know, right out of the gates, you know, when when your team reached out, you know, to me about uh, having you on the show, I felt immediately connected to you. You know, I think you and I have a, a similar story in, in a certain regard. We're both uh, dads of, of children with disabilities. And so, you know, seeing what you are doing with your film, Forget Me Not, and the advocacy that you are doing, not just for your child, but for all individuals living with disabilities, I think it's um, incredible. And I'm so glad to get to to share this time with you today. Oh, thanks so much. You know, as I said in my introduction, you are a filmmaker. You recently released uh, an incredible documentary, Forget Me Not. And we're definitely going to cover that in the conversation. But before we go there, I want to get to know Olivier uh, a bit better. I'd love to hear, you know, where you're from, what your upbringing was like and and how you became a filmmaker. So let's start with, you know, childhood, uh, where are you from and and what was your what was your upbringing like? So I grew up in a pretty rural part of New Jersey at the time, um, Hunterdon County, New Jersey. And I, both my parents are from Quebec. Okay. Um, they, by way of California, so they, they'd been around. Um, I think finally they landed on New Jersey because, uh, you know, it's where my dad could get support for his green card through work. And mm. um, But where I grew up was was a pretty, looking back on it, it was pretty ideal. It was a, It was a nice kind of rural community, um, you know, rural by New Jersey standards, I guess, not like Midwest <laughs> standards. <laughs> and, uh, you know, as kids, we got to like explore. I, I think I always felt a little bit like a little bit of an outcast having, mm. you know, parents that just had different belief systems than um, most of the children where I grew up. So d- definitely like as we got older, I think I thought, about things a little differently um than most of the most of the students but when it came to like you know being a kid and playing and stuff we would you know have a lot of fun it was a it was a good good upbringing so with your your parents being you know from quebec by way of california was like was french a part of your childhood do you speak french to this day I do. Yeah, we uh, well, now it's like when we get together, it's more of a blend of French and English. Um, <laughs> my, my French is not as good as it used to be because I don't practice much anymore. But right. Yeah, all my family's up in Quebec, um, you know, pre pandemic, we'd go up at least once a year. Um, as a kid, we'd go up two, three times a year. And, you know, so um Gosh, I, my, my family up there is just some, some of the most interesting people I know. Um, you know, it runs the gamut. I, I just love hanging out with them. And uh, I can't wait. It's been a while since I've been to Quebec and I can't wait to go back. I feel like we need a, a story. You know, you're 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 dangling that little carrot in front of us. Like what, what makes these people or maybe one person so interesting? Well, I uh, for one, you know, um, one of my first experiences with disabilities is actually through my cousin, um, you know, just since we're talking about disabilities that popped in my head, but around, uh, he was, uh, number two, um, amateur golfer in all of Canada and around 1920. And then he hit 21 years old and he had lupus and became paralyzed. Mm. So overnight he had to learn, um, how to live in a wheelchair essentially and, and everything that goes with that. 
And at the time I was in high school and, you know, that was my first experience, um, you know, seeing, seeing a disability uh, with someone I love, you know, and, and someone that used their body, like, you know, was on track to become a professional athlete mm. and, uh, to see him go through the pain he went through, but also conquering it and overcoming it. Um, he ended up taking up wheelchair tennis. And I think at his peak, he was the ranked number 10 in the world. And he traveled the world, um, playing tennis and, you know, had a pretty successful career. And it was just, such an empowering thing to see and, and amazing so when when Emilio was born you know I, I told him I'm like you know there's a lot that you're going to be able to teach Emilio that I, I can't teach him because you've experienced it firsthand right how old were you when your cousin went through this I think I was in high school okay so you have very clear memories of, of watching this very you know close individual to you going through this you know huge transition in life Oh, yeah. And, you know, what's interesting is that I think we became closer. Um, I don't know if it's because he was traveling more for tennis and I got to see him in New York quite a bit. Um, but in, in many ways, we became closer. And, um, yeah, it, it just impacted my life for sure. So do you think obviously it impacted your life back then You know, in your formative years as a teenager? But do you think a lot of what you saw and observed firsthand informed the way that you've started to navigate uh, life as the parent of a child with a disability? Um, well, you know, when I, when I went to high school, I, I didn't see anyone with disabilities. Um, they, they quite frankly were, were hidden. Uh, you know, I went to a high school with, I think close to 3000 people in it. And I just never had met anyone with down syndrome. Um, you know, at least no no disabilities that I noticed, you know, that I knew of. And uh, so when Emilio was born, I was completely unprepared hmm. as an adult. And to this day, I still feel unprepared. And I feel, you know, a big part of making the film was me trying to break down those barriers, I feel, between me and people with disabilities. And, you know, how, how do you engage and, and talk and, you know, treat people like humans as opposed to treat them as someone that has a disability, you know? Right, right. And I think, you know, as we get you know deeper into talking about your film uh, in this interview, you know, I, I think it's interesting because you say breaking down your own personal barriers, but in a sense, it feels like you're also providing um, a tool for others who maybe have felt similarly to you to get information about what actively happens every day in the life of someone with a disability or specifically in your case, the parent uh, of a child with a disability, which I think is, these are the educational tools that we need to help uh, those who have not navigated that road be not understand because if they've never gone through it, they can't understand, but to be more empathetic of, of what you specifically are going through um, as a parent. I think that's one of the powerful takeaways uh, from your film as it pertains to, you know, parenthood, um, you know, you talked a little bit about your parents and moving to New Jersey to help with the green card. How, how pivotal of a role did have your parents played in your life and, and have they molded you as the, uh, as the person you've become as a parent? Oh man, it's <laughs> a great question. I think, you know, there's the expression that you become your parents. And I, I think in, in a large part I did and, you know, I'm grateful for it. Cause I, I think, um, you know, the combination of my parents, I, th I think, has really informed me. My my mom was an artist, 
Um, my dad's a, you know, an engineer, a very practical thinker. Um, and I, I think I've taken what I'd like to think the best of both of them, you know, and tried to implement it in my own life. And sometimes I, I, I got to say, I didn't try. It just happened. Um, but, you know, when, when Emilio was born, I asked my dad, I was like, you know, what am I going to do? I, I don't know. I don't know how to raise a child with a disability. And he said, well, you're going to raise him like any other child. You're going to make him strong and you're going to make him able to, you know, um, act on his own and, and be self-sufficient. And that's all you can hope that you can do, you know, and that kind of practical thinking was just like, so matter of, he said it's so matter of fact, and I, I take it with me every day. You know, it's just you got to treat him like any other child. <laughs> right. There true. was like, there was no question there. It was just you're going to show up for your kid and and you're going to be just as he was there for you. That statement was the perfect example of the way that you could show up for for your child. Um, and clearly you're you're doing that, you know, through through your work um, to take this skill set that you've honed as a professional storyteller to now shine a light, um, not just on what it is to be a parent of a child with a disability, but also what it's like to navigate the education system that we have here in the U.S. and specifically in one of the biggest uh, cities in the U.S., New York City, um, which, again, we'll chat about a little bit more. Um, was there any specific advice or any moments throughout your childhood that you remember from your parents that have stuck with you through all these years? Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I think, I think overall, um, you know, going back to my father, he's just such a great problem solver mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, th there's just never a problem too big for him to kind of figure out how to think about and how to, how to fix it, you know? So it was like, um, you know, it didn't matter if it was like working on the house or, you know, if it was, you know, something with school, you know, he'd, he'd talk about kind of process and being patient and, and getting to the, you know, the outcome that you want. Um, so I, you know, specific things aren't popping in my head right now, but, uh, um, but yeah, I mean, it's the same way he taught me how to, you know, how to use tools and do woodworking, you know, he, it's, it's all these lessons in life that kind of add up um, that, you know, when you become an adult and become a parent, you don't know exactly where it's coming from, but you know, that it came most likely from your experience as a child. Right. It, it feels like your dad was like exactly the type of presence that you needed in your life as a kid. And even to this day, you know, I think what you said there that really stuck out to me was patience, right. Um, and nothing that we can't, figure out we just got to be patient to figure out how we how we find that answer how we find that solution and it feels like what an incredible example to set for you as you've embarked on your journey of of being a parent of a child with a disability and all these different things that you are navigating for your child you know mm -hmm. um, and being that advocate for your child and how incredible that you had that example um of your dad you know to to provide that firm foundation. I find, you know, in life, our parents, um, oftentimes it's not necessarily the things that they say, you know, that, that sort of stick with us. It's the way that they show up um, every single day and the way that you get to watch them navigating challenging moments in life that really show you for better or worse, how to navigate similar circumstances uh, as you become an adult. Um, so clearly your parents have had a, 
a big impact on you. Um, I'm curious, this question has been running around in my head is like, how has your experience with Emilio and with the film um, changed your life and specifically how you work as a filmmaker? Mm. Well, Emilio has changed my life in so many ways. And, you know, inherently that's changed me as a filmmaker. I think that in large part, it's made me realize that I want to use my filmmaking to try to make the world a better place. Um, you know, I think that you sp you spend years kind of de developing your craft and every day I'm learning and developing, but, you know, um, trying to focus on things that can make the world a little better through storytelling. You know, I, I think that um, filmmaking in particular, you know, whether it be short term or long, short form or long form, um, is just the most powerful way of storytelling just because it's so um, visceral, you know, and it, there's only certain certain types of stories that are better in different formats, but the, the stories that are meant for film are really powerful on, on film, you know. 100%. Um, yeah, so I, you know, I, I want to continue developing in that sense. And then, you know, working with Emilio in particular, it's also, I think I met for the first time um, my boundaries as a filmmaker okay. because I realized through the process and especially through post-production of the film, which, you know, um, for your listeners, like you, you, you shoot a film and it took a couple of years to shoot it, but then you're in post-production for a year, year and a half afterwards um, through the editing process. And, you know, you're, you know, so I was living from, you know, nine to five working with the editor um, living in the, this, time capsule of my life and then right. going home and Emilio's getting older he's going to you know kindergarten all of a sudden and um so you know I think when I say I met my boundaries is I realized that you know there's sometimes when um when it might be better to to not have a camera on mm. you know a certain situation and just live in the moment and uh, I realized that you know there's now I've realized that there's sometimes when I just um don't want to film something I just want to be there for him yeah, isn't that interesting? Um, I can relate to that, you know, being, you know, working in, in television, being a storyteller as well, is that, you know, so much of our life as it comes to our profession is about got to get the shot, right? Like, don't put the camera down. You know, you're, you're going to, that's when the best things happen, right? Is always when you put the camera down. So you always got to be rolling. But where that becomes challenging is for us as parents, right? Is that, do you want to remember everything in your mind or do do you want to remember or run the risk of remembering everything through what you saw on a screen, uh, through what you're capturing on your phone for most you know, parents at home? And I think it's a good reminder for everyone, especially coming from a professional like you and, and me being able to relate is that you should want first and foremost to capture those moments in your mind. I feel like we become so hardwired to like, got to get the photo, got to get the video. Cause if I don't, it's almost like this moment didn't happen. Um, and let me tell you from a storyteller standpoint is that you can never take away the moments that happen. The only thing you can potentially strip away if you're so focused on capturing it is the feeling. Um, mm -hmm. And and I don't know if you deal with that as a storyteller is that sometimes you get so laser focused on the composition of a shot or making sure the audio is working properly or whatever, is sometimes you miss the feeling of the moment. Mm -hmm. do, you ever, do you ever deal with that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't tell you the amount of times where I'm like, 
you know, I'm experiencing this moment looking through a camera and everything's happening properly. And then all of a sudden a plane goes overhead and all I can think about is the airplane, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yes. So it's, yeah, it takes you right out of that moment. Um, so, you know, it's, I, I think, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a double-edged sword because I think having a camera, you know, has always allowed me to put a hyper-focus on something and really um, let me see it in a different way. But then when it comes to your own experience, sometimes, you know, like I said, it's just better to put down the camera. And like you said, you know, um, there's so many people, for example, concerts, right? So many mm. people are recording concerts on their phone when they're at the concert. I'm guilty of it. 100%. But it's like, you know, really, like at the end of the day, like, are you going to watch that video? Even? <laughs> you know, well, also, like, if you ever look at those videos, there's like 175 phones in front of that person that's also capturing <laughs> that same concert, most of which probably have a better view than you if they're in front of you. So why not just find their account on TikTok or YouTube? And just go watch the video that they post if you ever want to watch it later. And then you can always have that that memory, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think yeah. that, I, I'm guilty of it too. You know, <laughs> is it like, you know, tree lighting at Rockefeller Center? Like that's a perfect example is like you always see like someone's video and then all you see in the in front of them is just all these glowing screens capturing uh, the same moment. It, it makes me think of um, years ago, I used to work before I got into, you know, producing television. I worked at the YMCA as a as a camp director and I took a travel camp out to Catalina Island, the small island off the coast of Southern California. And I remember, granted, this was before like, you know, really nice camera phones and all that sort of stuff. So it was maybe easier to do these things back then. But I remember we did this long hike and we got to the top of this mountain in Avalon. And I remember saying to all the kids and actually somebody captured a photo from behind of us. It was like me and like 12 kids standing on on the crest of this mountain, just looking at the Pacific Ocean. And I had them all put their hands out in front of them as if it was like a screen. And I said, take a mental picture right now. All of us, were going to do this together to take a mental picture of this moment. I guarantee you'll never forget this. And, and I bring that up to remind myself, uh, as much as anyone listening right now, that like I think it's really important that we slow down sometimes and take those those mental pictures or videos of these moments in our lives that, that are, that are fleeting, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but fortunately we also have people like you to capture those moments. So that way, you know, if we want to go back and watch them uh, later, we can. Um, I do want to get to your film uh, here in a second, but before we get there, I'm curious, what was it that got you into becoming a filmmaker? Um, again, I guess I have to, I guess I have to blame my dad. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, pra the practical one got you into yeah. filmmaking. Yeah. He happened to be a really good <laughs> photographer before he became an engineer. And, okay. you know, I, he had an old knicker mat manual camera and he taught me everything about depth of field and lenses mm. and all this stuff. And I, I just became fascinated with photography and that quickly turned into making skate videos with my friend oh, wow. editing deck to deck. And, um, you know, it was just, uh, it was just a passion of mine to the point where then I got to high school, you know, and th this goes back to public schools and giving opportunity mm. to students. I had a high school that had a, a TV channel, like a local access TV channel. Oh, cool. And at the time they had some of the earliest like nonlinear editors, um, and I spent a lot of time on Avid and Premiere and um, just learning how to how to work it. And uh, it just became a passion of mine. And then um, eventually there was, you know, the TV course was done and I uh, 
you know, I asked my teacher, I'm like, I'd really like to continue studying. He's like, well, you can do like an independent study and I'll sponsor you. So for mm. a period of day, I got to just make my own films and, wow. uh, and that's how it all started. And the teacher saw that I, you know, that I had this kind of calling and he supported it and, um, yeah. And so it started then. And then I went to school for it eventually. Wow. Let's give it up for the teachers out there. You know, I, I mean, it's, it's something that is said all the time and it's unfortunate that we have to say it all the time, but gosh, teachers and the impact that they have on us as human beings and the fact that they're paid peanuts, um, not only to keep an eye on like 15, 20, 30 children, you know, for six to eight hours a day, but the fact that they are in a lot of cases, probably having a more tangible impact on our kids' lives than we are. Um, and the fact that so many of our kids turn out okay, I mean, that's a testament um, to teachers. And then in your case, not only turn out okay, but inspire you and encourage you to pursue what you love. Like what what a what a gift, what a blessing teachers are uh, and those who pursue that. So huge, huge thank you to all the, all the teachers out there. And obviously we're going to chat a little bit about teachers uh, as we get into your film. So this feels like a good time to, to transition and, and to get into, you know, really talking about your journey with forget me not and, and your, and your wife's journey to, you know, becoming parents of a child with a disability and, and what that experience was like. So let's, um, let's get into it. Awesome. So what, what was the impetus? I mean, you're a filmmaker, you know, uh, for people who, you know, aren't familiar with your work, I know they can, you know, look you up uh, Roto six, I believe is the name of your production company, right? Yep, Roto Six Films. Yeah, so Roto Six Films. You know, this is this is what you do. What made you feel that you needed to turn the camera on yourself for your film? Forget me not. Yeah, well, when when my son was born, um, he was born with Down syndrome, and I was completely unprepared for him. Uh, you know, quite frankly, I had never really spent time with anyone with Down syndrome, and to that point. Um, you know, it was a lot of doom and gloom, and it was kind of unfair uh, that I didn't get to enjoy the day he was born in many regards, because I was mm. so um, weighed down by the the gravity of the moment. And when I started to reflect on it, I realized that it wasn't necessarily my fault that I hadn't spent any time with someone that had a disability. It was more that they were hidden from me and they mm. didn't go to class with them and they were separated from us, you know, both in school and in society. So very quickly, um, I came to the conclusion that, you know, I wanted to do something for Emilio to try to make this world a little more inclusive. And I didn't know what that would look like, but I, you know, have this tool of filmmaking and I wanted to use that to try to make the world a little better. Yeah, it's incredible. You know, I just watched your film and there were so many moments that that moved me. There were so many moments that that angered me, you know, watching this film. You know, I would encourage anyone who hasn't, you know, checked out the film yet, please make sure you you do so. Um, I think it's it should be required viewing for whether you're a parent of a child with a disability or not. And frankly speaking, it, it might be more important for people whose children don't have a disability, or maybe they've never interacted with the disability community before to get some really uh, deep and real understanding of, of what the status is, you know, for so many members of the, the disabled community. And, and specifically as it pertains to education, I think I was so floored by the things that you revealed through your film, you know, and I kept thinking, watching it, how is, how is, uh, how's Olivier feeling in these moments? Like there were so many moments that I wanted to know, like when you guys went and, you know, first had your first evaluation, like 
what are you feeling? And first and foremost, I think going back to when Emilio was born, did you guys know prior to him being born that he had Down syndrome? No, so we we had no idea that Emilio had Down syndrome, and quite frankly, it does what uh, it does entire process uh, pregnancy was really smooth and mm. really good, and we didn't get any testing. It was very low risk, so we just um, had no idea really. Um, I think it was a one in ten thousand chance, and uh, you know. I'd like to say we we won the lottery, <laughs> you know. So yeah, we, it was a complete shock to us in that moment, and I I think that's what really kind of angered me about my own experience, my own life experience was being unprepared for that moment. Like I right. I should have I should have known that um you know people with Down syndrome live very full and complete lives and are very happy and um you know have a lot of opportunities in today's world and it, you know I I knew none of that um. So, you know, I hope the film at the very least for people kind of um, puts a spotlight on that fact. Yeah, I think, you know, looking at you know, your story and my story, you know, side by side is we found out about Emerson's disability when my wife was about 21 weeks pregnant. And, you know, people often ask me like, well, it, do you think it was a good thing that that you knew ahead of time? And And in some respects, I think, yes, you know, it was helpful because it gave us that you know, four and a half months to educate ourselves and sort of prepare, but in a way it sort of shades the pregnancy as well. And I think it's, um, it's all a matter of perspective. It's like your story is your story. And I don't think it's about like critiquing which way would have been better because you could play the what if game forever. Right. And so for me, I think, you know, and, and maybe it was the same for you. And that's what I'd be interested to know is that, do you think it was, helpful that you guys didn't know prior to him being born because when you were filming in the hospital the day he was born and, and your wife in labor um that wasn't for a documentary i imagine that was just for your own home video collection right yeah i mean i i filmed Ilda throughout her pregnancy just like any enthusiastic father-to-be would you know <laughs> right <laughs> i just i thought she had a beautiful bump and i filmed it and uh you know the day of the pregnancy i was nervous and you know i was just trying to hold the camera steady as much as i could but I, was, <laughs> I didn't even know why i was filming it to be honest with you <laughs> but right. i was just because i'm just used to having a camera in my hand and uh you know and then the news came and I, I thought I had put the camera down and the camera's actually around my neck at that point. And I just forgot to stop recording. Right. And I happened to capture this moment where the doctor's telling us Emilio showed five markers of Down syndrome. Um, and that, that was like, honestly, it really it took me a year to just see if I actually had recorded that. I wasn't sure mm -hmm. if I had it. And then it took me a whole nother year to actually watch it. Um, but in a way, working with that footage throughout the edit um it kind of it was almost like therapy in a way i got to um you know to face this kind of hard moment in my life um and come to terms with it mm. in a very real way so yeah i think that's something that isn't often maybe talked about publicly is the parent's journey um when you have a child with a disability and you know i much like you i think i processed my emotions through starting to write my children's book series the capables i was like okay and i don't think i was necessarily thinking about it actively like oh this is my this is how i'm coping this is how i'm processing it wasn't until after the fact that i took a step back and and sort of looked at myself and what i was feeling because i think historically 
it has, you know, not only is disability not talked about nearly enough, but even, you know, parents in the disability community, I feel like there's fear of talking about it or saying that you are afraid, saying that you are scared because in some way you're afraid that someone might interpret that, that you're disappointed. Um, but I don't think that could be any further than the truth. I'd imagine that for you, you are so incredibly proud of Emilio and who he is, right? Oh, absolutely. I, I think, you know, those initial feelings are really just born out of my ignorance, um, you know, to that point. And but my world's completely changed since then. You know, Emilio has taught me so much about me and what I'm capable of in many ways. And I, I think that in some ways, I think there's he's taught me more than I, I can ever teach him um, just yeah. by, you know, him being in our lives. So, you know, I, I think um you know, when people say like, oh, but isn't it challenging and, and all this stuff? And really, I don't think so. I, I think any child is challenging and meant to challenge their parents. Yeah. Quite frankly, uh, you know, so and, you know, with with Down syndrome in particular, it's, you know, a lot of a lot of it's out there. There's been a lot of studies and it's we, we kind of know, you know, the the path we have to take, you know, for Emilio to, to be his best self. Um, and a lot of that has to do with him being integrated into society and not not being segregated. Yeah, I mean, that's a huge part of your film, right? As you, as you guys are preparing for Emilio to start school, uh, you know, in the New York City you know, public school system. And, and we'll dig, dig deeper into that as we talk a little bit further. But it almost feels like maybe the, the challenging part for us, I'm just sort of thinking in real time as you're sharing this, you know, because people say, isn't it challenging? Isn't it challenging? And it's not so much challenging that my child has a disability. It's challenging in the way that the world interacts and engages and has been built to limit my child with a disability. And yeah. I don't, you know, you've shared a lot here for me. Like I didn't, I didn't have a lot of, you know, close friends or family members living with visible or non-visible disabilities growing up. So I wasn't, I wasn't aware of the the reality of how this world is not built for people with disabilities. And it wasn't until Emerson came that I started to notice all of that and get really angry about that. So I, I don't know if it's the same for you, but like the challenge for me is not Emerson. Emerson's not the challenge for me. It's, it's the world that our kids have to grow up in and how can we ensure that it is as inclusive as possible? I, I think that's a great point. And, uh, you know, one of the realizations I've had is that, you know, there's nothing wrong with Emilio and there's nothing wrong with Emerson. It's really right. what's wrong is the world we built that doesn't, you know, include them in it, you know, it doesn't have the, the, you know, ramps for them to get to where they need to be, so to speak. Um, so that that's like the, absolutely the biggest takeaway, you know, I've gotten but the, also the good news is that the world has become a lot better for, right. for Emilio than it was just 50 years ago, you know, and it, that excites me because I see the trajectory and like, I, I quite frankly think that Emilio was born in the best time, you mm. know, and there's still so much to do and so much to, to make this world better and more equitable for people with disabilities. But um, at the same time, you know, life expectancy is higher than it used to be. Um, there's no more institutions or at least not in the way that we, you know, had them in the seventies and eighties and sixties and before, um, you know, and Emilio's going to have the opportunity to, to live a really full life. And I'm sure Emerson is as well, because we're going to make sure of it. 
Yeah. Olivia, in your film, not only are we watching, uh, you know, you and your wife and, and Emilio navigating in real time, you know, you advocating for him and getting him into an inclusive uh, classroom setting, but you yourself are going and visiting some of these uh, now thankfully closed institutions that used to be places where uh, individuals with disabilities would basically just be sent off. And the videos you see, the stills you see of these places, it, it almost feels like a prison uh, in a lot of cases. And there's some footage of you sitting outside. There's some footage of you sitting outside these institutions, one of which is Letchworth Village Institution. Can you talk me through what it was like for you being in those spaces, seeing these buildings, learning these stories about what happened uh, in these places? And that like, this wasn't just a movie, like these were real human beings, children that lived there at these facilities. What, what was that like for you? Yeah, around the time that Emilio got recommended for a segregated setting and we were still like in the process of fighting it, um, you know, I, I had encountered uh, the film that Geraldo Rivera, funny enough, made in 1972 about the institutions in New York. And um, when I saw that, I, I just couldn't believe it. And I couldn't believe that they still exist. Um, but I, they do. And, uh, you know, now they're abandoned buildings mostly. But I went to go visit one of them because I just wanted to just feel it. I wanted to feel what these places felt like. And uh, we visited Letchworth Village, which is in upstate New York. And when I went there, I didn't expect much to happen. You know, I, I just wanted to get visuals of the outside of the buildings um, to show, you know, that this this was a real thing. Like, it can't be denied. Like, we used to take children from their mothers at, you know, two days old and put them in these institutions. Um, and I'm glad they're standing because they're a testament to, you know, a history that we we can never repeat. Um, so I, I wanted to go see that and get visuals of it. But as I stood in these buildings and I saw these evaluation reports, the same evaluation, you know, earlier version of the evaluation reports that Emilio was um, taking, I saw them strewn upon the floor and I just couldn't believe it because I started reading the names and the ages and the descriptions of the students that were there. And it just, it just struck home for me um, that, you know, one, we've come a long way since then, but we have so much further to go. And, um, you know, even though I'm so fortunate that Emilio is not growing up in that time period, um, he's still growing up in a time period where the world's not, prepared for someone like him uh, um, the world's not built for someone like him and it's going to take me as a father um, my wife as a mother and eventually him as a, his own advocate to really make sure that he gets what he deserves 100 there's one other thing that really struck me you were interviewing uh, someone and they were really being very candid uh, and they talked about the american eugenics movement and, you know, sort of that being the root of the separation of people with disabilities from those with that are non-disabled here in America. And really, um, in a lot of respects, you know, she compared this to a lot of the eugenics that have existed uh, in other countries around the world. Um, when you're sitting there interviewing that person and you hear such very, um, oh, what's the word I want to use? Just uh, real and raw language like that that really puts this in perspective 
what are you feeling not only as a filmmaker, but um, as a human, as a dad of a child with a disability in that moment? Yeah, that was Sue Swenson. Um, Sue Swenson is a person that does not mince words. Uh, she she says it how it is. And when she said that, I wasn't prepared for her to say that. And I I, I almost gasped when she said it, um, much like the feeling you get when you watch the film where suddenly it all made sense to me. It just mm. all made sense. Um, you know, why Why did we start separating people that were different from us or that we thought were, you know, on lower scale intellectually? Um, it, it was it was a shocking moment and and one that suddenly tied the history of how we treat people with disabilities and all the work we're doing to unwind that right now. 100%. You know, and, and Sue goes on to say later on in the film, she says, we must have passion if we are going to change the world. And clearly someone like Sue, when you hear her in the film, she has passion. And I, and I think that's a great note for all of us, no matter what you're advocating for in the world, like we have to do it with passion, especially when you have all these years of systems that have been built. Um, so I'm grateful for someone like Sue, who does not mince words, like, like you said, and and tells it like it is. And until we face these realities, you know, it's, it, it's a lot easier for us to just sort of like sweep things under the rug or like, well, that just lives in that little closet over there. And we don't, we don't talk about that. We don't think about that, but it's still there. It's not going anywhere. And eventually there's going to be too much in the closet for too long and the door's going to burst open. So I think the sooner we address it, um, the better. And it's great to have people like Sue and so many others who are doing incredible advocacy work um, in the world to, to help, to help move things forward. So thank you, Sue, is really the moral of that story. <laughs> I don't know if you get this question a lot from other parents of children with disabilities, but they're like, well, what can I do? You know, I think that that question comes a lot. And my answer always is, well, just be true to who you are. You don't have to go out and produce a full-length feature film documentary. You don't have to write a children's book series if your natural way of showing up for your child is just being there for them and letting them know that they are safe and you are a safe space for them, I think that's that's more than enough. But I think for people like you and people like myself who maybe have those connections or those skill sets, I would encourage those people to leverage those connections, to leverage that passion to storytell or whatever they do to shine a light because that is the only way that change comes is by having the conversation in your film uh, opens up a lot of very important conversations. And it's wild to me, you know, I'm sitting there watching your film, uh, Olivier, and I'm just like, wait, this was all happening in like 2019. This wasn't like 1963, you know, the conversations, you know, getting into your documentary here, you know, like there were so many moments of like seeing you and your wife with the evaluators and and the things that they were saying and these sort of like antiquated ways of thinking um, and approaching handling a case like your child like I, I felt a lot of palpable frustration from you like talk talk us through when you're sitting in those evaluations with these people from the the board of education what are you feeling in those moments uh it's complex <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i mean first of all you, you're you're advocating for your child and you're trying to keep a cool head and you know that you know nothing's gonna get resolved if if you lose your cool but at the same time you're realizing that um your child's trajectory is kind of being decided in that moment mm -hmm. you know at least in new york it's almost impossible to be taken out of a segregated setting if you have a 
you know, significant disability. So, you know, early on, we decided, my wife and I, that we had to put our line in this, put a line in the sand and and say that, you know, we're, we're going inclusive or that's, that's it. Um, right. You know, we'll, we'll do whatever we need to do. Hopefully we don't have to go to court. Um, but, you know, that that's all too common as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I guess, you know, there's, there's a lot of feelings. There's a lot of angst. And quite frankly, it's, it happens every year, um, you know, around you know, those IEPs around May. And, you know, every year, even around this time, I start to think about it. I'm like, oh, what, how are the teacher reports going to come in and all this mm-hmm. stuff? Because so often it's not about, you know, how can we help this child succeed in an inclusive setting? The conversation goes to, um, you know, does he belong? or she belong and that's at that point you're not even having the same conversation so um you know the the feelings are are complex as you sit across the table but i think that the biggest feeling is just frustration like how can you not see this like i know you didn't get into special education because you want to hurt children you want to help children that's why we're all here but how can you not see that there's been hundreds of studies that show inclusion works better how can you not see that it's a human right to be included with other children and to not be segregated it's a complex feeling i I wish i could put it in a more self-contained paragraph but it's something that's hard to get my head around really yeah, I can only imagine. So let's go back a little bit. You know, you talk about this a lot in the film and and from your perspective, plus, you know, the advocate that you're working with. And when you go to uh, to meet with these evaluators, you even explore inclusive uh, schools that, that exist out there. Um, so can you go back and just define for us like the difference between an inclusive classroom and a segregated classroom structure? Sure. And, you know, to your point, I didn't really know anything when I started making the film. Um, you know, the film really started as me doing an exploration of what inclusion is. And, mm. you know, basically children with intellectual disabilities um, and some children with other disabilities as well often get separated from general education and can put in a small class or what some people call special class. Mm. Um, and that in itself is not, terrible it's not necessarily that they receive worse instruction although sometimes they most of the time they do um the problem is that they're not learning from neurotypically developing children um so you know they're from a young age but in small classes of 12 9 6 students and they're told that they don't belong and from a very very early age in our son's case two and a half they started to become disenfranchised um, Mm. from the rest of society. And I think from a functional standpoint, it's easy to see why you would contain these children because they don't learn at the the same pace necessarily. But when you think of on a human rights level and the fact that you're actually taking a child away from society and putting him in a small room to where he or she doesn't get to interact with other children, then you start to think about it like something's wrong here. This is something we need to solve for. So really, when I started making the film, it was, you know, what is inclusion? What does it look like when it works? And how does it work? Mm-hmm. Um, and as we're making that film, Emilio starts to get put into a segregated setting. And we're like, right. oh, wait a minute, maybe we should turn the cameras on ourselves. And that's kind of how we ended up with the film that we made. Wow. So it wasn't until that point that you guys decided this needs to become a film. Yeah, to that point, we were just like, oh, you know, we'll we'll show Emilio, um, 
you know, we'll show how we're connected to the subject matter and that'll be it. But it's mainly about these other families that we're spending a lot of time with. And quickly, what I learned is that those other family stories were informing my own story mm. and it just, you know, started to all blend together. Um, but really, you know, when I sat down with my wife and we talked about like, you know, are we in this or like, we really going to do this? Um, you know, we talked about it. Well, if we do it, we have to show everything and we have to show our hardest moments and our, right. we have to be really honest about it because, um, the film is very quickly going to become our, our perspective and our point of view. So, um, so that's how we ended up with that film. Yeah. I mean, wh what is your mission with the film? I think the in the most basic form is to create awareness. Um, you know, I didn't think about inclusive education before my son was born and I wish I had. So I at least want this to be out there so that people have the opportunity to think about it, to start a discussion. Um, I think that schools can become more inclusive if all parents want inclusion. So that's mm. parents of typically developing children as well. Um, you know, it, it can be hard for some parents of, you know, say you have a gifted and talented student, it can be a little difficult to get to the point where you're thinking, well, you know, if there's children with special needs in the class, won't that slow the class down or won't it hurt advanced learners? And the truth can be, it can be farther from the truth. You know, the, all the studies show that actually, um, they learn from each other and with each other. So mm. it definitely helps children with intellectual disabilities, but the advanced learners actually learn a lot too, because they're reteaching the lesson sometimes to these other children. And then, you know, to, to put it all together, there's extra teachers in the classroom and nobody gets hurt from that. Right. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of advantages. So I, I hope that people with typically developing children see the film as well and start to request um, that they're, child be put in inclusive setting yeah isn't it interesting i've encountered this and it sounds like me you've encountered this to an extent as well is that you know when i when people ask me about my children's book series about the capables they go well tell me about it and i say well it's an inclusive children's book series and some people go oh like immediately that word inclusive has like some negative connotation upon it where in in my mind from from my perspective as the parent of a child with a disability and, and a person who just advocates in general for everyone to, to be included, I think of that being a happy word. Have you encountered like through your conversations with people, like when you use that word inclusive, do you, do you feel like there's pushback or there's, or they're a little concerned as to what that might mean for them or, or for their children specifically? It's very interesting because, uh, you know, often inclusion, inclusion can mean a lot of things. And I, I think it should mean all the things. <laughs> exactly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I think um, there's definitely, we're living in a very volatile society right now. And I, I think that, you know, some people can take it as just, you know, annoying, or they can put a political slant on it. But um at the end of the day, it doesn't matter where you stand politically, what what religion you are, you know, what race you are. Anybody can have a child with a disability and right. anyone would want the same thing for their child. Um, so I haven't encountered so many people getting annoyed by it. But I, at the same time, I really 
tried to get the counterpoint in the film, and it was very hard to find someone that said inclusion shouldn't exist in the mm. classroom. So you know, it's it's interesting. It's I know I know that sentiment exists, but nobody would say it to my face. <laughs> yeah, and and maybe it goes back towards maybe not so much people being anti-inclusion, but af afraid or nervous about what that looks like uh, mm. because it hasn't been the norm, right? Like we know as humans, you know, so often the things that, you know, kids might call weird or whatever are just things they've never been exposed to before. Uh, I've encountered this a lot with, with our books is that I think there are a lot of parents of non-disabled children or just people in general who want to have the conversation and want to know how to talk about disability, but they don't know where to start. And they're afraid of saying something wrong. But with a film like yours, with our book series, it's like you're providing the framework for these people to start to grasp that this isn't something to be scared of. Yeah, it's different. But like everything that is normal in life was once different, right? And 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 differences, as we you know, say in our series, is like is what makes us super. And you know, I I think we're at a point, you know, you talked about this earlier, where it feels like from a society standpoint, like we are there is this big movement, right? Which is really, really exciting for, for us as parents, but the only way the movement continues to happen is by participation. Um, and so, you know, you know, my question for you, you know, moving forward outside of the film is like, do you have other things that you are endeavoring to do or other stories that you want to tell or lights that you want to sort of shine on situations that exist, not just here in the U S or maybe around the world as it pertains to disability and, and what are those, and what are those stories that you want to tell? I think there there's so many stories and sometimes it's it's overwhelming um you know to to think about because this is like I was saying earlier it's a completely new world for me mm -hmm. um you know like like you said as well it's there's there's a barrier there sometimes when someone's different than you and you haven't been exposed to it at a young age there's a barrier and if you, if you go into a classroom like you know in the Henderson's you go to the Henderson school which is a public school and, uh, you know, 40% of the school has a disability and there's no um, segregated settings in the school. Everyone's together learning with each other and from each other. And the children just don't see disabilities. Mm. Um, you know, they, that's something that's learned. It's something that we teach children, you know, um, th throughout the ages. So I think that, you know, the first thing is that I really... I think that a classroom, a really well-functioning classroom should mirror what you want society to look like, which is where everyone has a place in the world. Yeah. Um, you know, as, as I think about projects to make in the future, um, you know, I, I think that Forget Me Not might have a little bit of a upsetting ending and that was a little bit um one because it happened but, but two <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know we, we couldn't change re the course of reality but um you know two is that uh i want i want to give other parents optimism so you know i, I want to do a project that really um gives a, an optimistic view of the trajectory where we're headed you know and and we yeah. do we do it i try to do it with the film where we, we show we try to balance it out where we show inclusion working and you know we show how far we've come in the last 50 years and we have so much further to go and i think you know with what we do with what you're doing with your book series and your podcast and 
you know, hopefully what I'll do with future films is to try to create a more optimistic vision of, of what the world can look like when we accept people for who they are. Agreed. And I think, you know, to your point, your film does a really great job of straddling that line is that even though the ending, as you said, is is upsetting and, and frustrating in a lot of respects, because we are so uh, sort of conditioned for happy endings, right? The vast majority, if not almost all stories that are told have some sort of happy ending, like Superman gets his butt kicked, but then he wins the fight and everything's fine. Um but I think it's important in, in and you did this so beautifully is to shine the light on the fact that like that call that you guys had with the evaluator at the end of the film where that person thinks that they have muted their their Zoom and you get to hear this side conversation that they're having with this other person where the decision was already made and it didn't matter what what the teacher or anyone else said on that call, they were just going to make the recommendation for Emilio that they were going to recommend that they'd already decided on. I was just, I was livid. Um, personally, I was livid for you. I was livid for Emilio. It was upsetting that like, that, that there are people who think like that, 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 that exists in our world today. Um, but I think it's important that, we get those feelings because we get angry. We get sad because something matters because something doesn't feel right. And I think the hope you show in forget me not is Henderson school in Boston, Massachusetts, that you see the school where 40% of the students uh, have disabilities. And like you said about the kids not seeing disability, I think it's more that it's not that they don't see it. It's just that it's normal. So it's not something that stands out as, as different because when you don't interact with somebody like that, when you've never been exposed to it, then yeah, it seems weird or odd or whatever it might be. Um, and I think your film does this beautiful job of like, here's the positive of look, look how happy all these kids are at Henderson school, not just the kids with disabilities, but all the other kids who are, you know, neurotypical or whatever it might be, or non-disabled, but then to realize that this is working. It is working so beautifully, but this massive school system in the biggest city in the United States of America, one of the cities that you would think is like the most inclusive and the most advanced socially still has this antiquated system. I just, I was absolutely blown away by it, but I just, I, I, I admire you and your wife and the way that you guys continue to fight the fight um, and the way that you continue to show up um, for, for Emilio. Um I'm curious, you know, someday Emilio will, will see this film. Um, what, what would you love Emilio to say to you once he watches this film, when he's, when he's older and he can see what, what mom and dad have, have done, you know, and, and, and the story that you guys told. That's a great question. I, I hope that he sees the film and knows that we did everything we could for him. Um, I know it always took, even if it was the path of most resistance <laughs> that, we, <laughs> that that we, you know, that we advocated for him. And I hope he sees that and realizes how important it is for, to, for him to advocate for himself. Um, because ultimately, you know, I think that's, that's the most important thing is that he learns to advocate for himself mm. and that he learns that he's worth just as much as anybody else and that he's, um, ready to, to fight for his own rights. Um, you know, that that's, if he can do that, then, I, then I'll know I've done my job. Um, right. 
so you know i I think that's that's what i want him to take away from it that said you know i I know that there's some hard moments in the film and i i do hope that he doesn't take those the wrong way necessarily you know when when uh, when mom and dad are having a hard time but it's the truth you know (laughs) but i think that creates a deeper bond you know i think we as as parents so often we want to show up as the best versions uh, of ourselves for our kids and um but i think best in 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 my opinion the definition of that is the most authentic um version of of yourself because you want your your kids to know you uh not this mask of you that you sort of put on to let them know that that everything is okay i think it i think it empowers kids to know that like mom and dad aren't perfect, you know? Um, I, th- I think that's, that's imperative. And I think it, it makes the relationship grow deeper when they know uh, honestly what, what you are, what you are feeling. And I think you guys have this beautiful time capsule that you've created that will live on forever. You know, where for, when Emilio's, you know, a teenager or a young adult that he can go back and and see everything that, that you navigated and everything you went through. And, you know, I think it, I don't know if you deal with this, but like with the capable specifically, you know, now that Emerson's four and she, you know, looks at books and she understands books, like part of me is like, is she going to say to me, daddy, like, great job, you know? And, and is that like, is that the definition of success for me? And I think early days it was, but now it's like, I think the definition of success is the world being impacted for the better through our work. Um, and, and I, and I see you and I see you doing that. Um, and, and that leads me to my next question is like, what have you tangibly seen, you know, over the last few years, as you become this massive advocate for your son and for the disability community at large, like what changes have you seen or progress that make you hopeful for the future? Well, in, in terms of the film, I've been seeing a lot of people coming to me and, and asking to screen the film for their fellow teachers mm-hmm. and, fellow special education workers, um, which that to me is like the core of where immediate change can happen, you know? So for example, um, the CPSC department, which is, you know, the special education department of Staten Island, which is part of the New York public school system, um, screened the film and uh, for all their their workers um, and, you know, had a very good response but also had a long discussions about you know what it's like to to be on the other side of the table from them um so i think that's like where it can have some immediate impact um also like a lot of universities are starting to show the film and for future teachers i mean that's really where some really big impact can have is just showing other teachers you know that will one day become administrators and run schools you know that um that inclusion, inclusive education is is important, um, mm. and it's worth problem solving and figuring out how to do it. And the models are out there. You know, I, I think one one thing about the Henderson School is that they invite teachers from all over the country and even all over the world to come see their school and just spend a couple of days there and see how they do it. Um, and they'll be the first to tell you, like it's not perfect because every year is new challenges and um they're always problem solving you know there's always these impromptu meetings between teachers like what are we going to do here like we're having this challenge and you know there it's but i think it's it's perfect and because it's imperfect it's perfect you know 
Right. And I think there was, there was one uh, educator that you were interviewing about like, isn't it hard? I think it, it was what she said. People ask her, isn't it hard working at an inclusive school? And I think she said something to the effect of like, when is teaching not hard? You know? And I, and I think that's, what's imperative to understand is that like being an educator, there will be challenge. It's, it's inherent to, to that profession. It's inherent to our world. We're always figuring out new things that challenges are everywhere, but the only way that we make it less challenging is by actually embarking on that journey to find the answers. And that's where I think Henderson school is just this beacon of light for what is possible. Um, on the flip side of that, you know, you guys talked in the film about uh, District 75, um, specifically in New York City. Can you talk a little bit more about District 75, what that means and and sort of so often what happens to children who end up uh, with a District 75 assignment or label, I think is what it might have been called in the film. Yeah, so District 75, you know, New York City public school system is the largest public school system in the country just by sheer numbers. And District 75 is a district within the public school system. Um, just like you might go to PS 250, there's District 75. And District 75 is actually spread, spread throughout the city. And, you know, it's co-located within other schools. So there'll be like one floor of a school that's the District 75 school um, for that area because the law states that a child has to go to their nearest public school. Um, so it's spread throughout the city. And what it is, is a segregated setting where these children never see other children. They have separate entrances into the school, separate lunch. Um, they eat lunch at different times. They go to gym at different times. Very rarely do they spend any time with other children or do they see any other children and it's this place where the expectations are much lower for children, quite frankly. Um, it's hard to see into these schools because they keep it so guarded. It's almost like a secret. But from the estimates, there's about 60,000 children in District 75 in New York City wow. that don't see any other children throughout the day. So that's as segregated as you can get. And really what it is, it's an extension of the institution, institutional system. In the 80s, New York finally uh, dismantled their institutions, um, but the school system had to absorb these children, and they didn't really know what to do with it. And um, so the school system absorbed them. They got really a lot of funding from the federal government uh, to school these children. At the time in the 80s, that was good. It was better than the institutions. But what's happened is that it's a really well-funded machine and it hasn't changed since the 80s. Mm -hmm. And now we're still stuck with District 75. And a lot of children like Emilio will track into District 75 because there's many times not better options. And you say in, in the film, I think it was the, the advocate that, that you guys were working with, is that a lot of more often than not, once a kid is assigned to District 75, they almost never get out. Right. Like that is where they are assigned from kindergarten all the way through graduating high school. Um, and so how does one advocate for a child moving out of a District 75 assignment? Because to me, it just seems so ridiculous that 60,000 children 
are assigned to this district and have separate entrances to their school, uh, go to, like you said, have lunch and gym and all these things at the, at different times. How is that preparing them for life beyond their school? How is that preparing them for being active participants in society? Because from my standpoint, it's not, it's doing the exact opposite of that. So I guess my question really is, is as a parent who is navigating that in real time, how does that make you feel? It makes me feel like they're sweeping children under the rug. You know what I mean? They're, they're saying, let's, let's hide them. Let's forget about them. And by the way, the people that work in district 75 do not feel that way because they're there every day trying to improve the lives of these children, but they're doing it in a system that's not built for success. It's not built to think about how these children are going to succeed in life after school. Um, when you look at it, school is a very small part of your life, you know, in the grand scheme of things, but it's right. really setting you up for the future. Um, so, you know, when a child at six years old is put in district 75, what are you telling that child? You're telling them that you're not, you're not worth it. You're, you're not, um, that you, you know, you don't, you don't belong with the other children. And as an adult, you're going to think, well, I don't belong with the other adults, you know, and it's, it really upsets me. It, it upsets me that it's ever existed, but it upsets me that it exists today. And, and with all that we know now. hundred percent. I imagine for a lot of people who are listening right now, who are hearing this information for the first time, it's got to be shocking it, it, to, because it's shocking for me frankly speaking, and I'm the parent of a child with a disability to think, because I had never heard of segregated education. I don't think I'd ever heard that term before watching your film. And obviously here in, in the US, you know, that word segregation harkens a lot of, uh, you know, feelings for a lot of people based off of the history of the United States of America, the not so distant history. And I think most people, me included, naively think that that word that reality for people doesn't exist anymore. And to hear that it not only exists, but exists for 60,000 children in New York City, frankly, like I can't wrap my head around it. But, it, and, and, and I think it's because of that, it's something that needs to change. So for all those people who are like me right now, who are, who are angry, who are frustrated, who feel like I got to do something about this, what are ways that people can tangibly? actively be a part of changing something that is so antiquated and is not working and needs to go away? Well, the first, the first step to any kind of change is awareness. So, you know, what you're doing with your podcast and just having conversations with other, other parents um, and other people, you know, I, I think is the most important thing. And just taking a step back, like, you know, we don't think of segregated settings as being a thing for children with disabilities because we've given it this term special class. Mm. Um, you know, so if you, if you look at the education system, you have general education, you have integrated in education, which is inclusive education. Um, and then you have special class and it's, it's given this like bow, you know, that, Oh, the kids are going to special class or being treated especially mm. um you know and the, and the truth is is that they're absolutely being segregated and they're being treated differently from other other students so um you know i, I hope people see that in the film and I, I hope they get angered enough to at least talk about it because the first thing we can do is have a conversation 
if you're a parent of a you know neurotypically developing child the biggest thing you can do is ask for your child to be put in an inclusive setting um, so that your child can spend time with a child with a disability and learn from them as well. And, uh, you know, I, I think that that kind of grassroots momentum is the biggest way to change things because, quite frankly, there's stuff that can be done on, you know, through con Congress and, you know, on, on a local and state level, but the truth is that there's a really strong law out there already called IDEA that highly recommends that inclusive education is started with. But school systems will actually take you to court, take you to due process in order so that you have to sue the school essentially to get them put in the proper placement. So wow. um so due process, you know, it's it's essentially a whole industry of of lawyers that are there to help you sue the school district so that you can get what you need for your child. Um, but what happens in New York City a lot of times is that instead of having a real conversation with parents and looking at how they can help a child succeed in an inclusive setting, they rather go to due process. And at that point, what they'll do is often um, the parents will succeed in you know court because it's against the law. And then you know, this the school district, New York Public City Schools will say, okay, well, we'll give you money to go to a private school. And then they go to what? a private school and yeah, it's just a really weird antiquated system. Um, why do they do, why do you think years. they do that? Like, I, I, I'm just like, sorry to, to cut you off there, but I'm just so floored. Like if they know that it's against the law and they know that you're likely going to win, why do they make you go to due process? And then why on top of that, do they spend the money to send children to private school. I like, do you have a hypothesis or do you know, like, why is this happening? I, th I think it's, you know, if, if I had to guess, I would just say it's a really big machine that's hard to turn around. Um, you know, this, the school system with over a million children in it is just, it's, it's hard to change it. And I, I think that's the, the biggest problem is that there hasn't been someone to come in and just make a wholesale change to how the school views these things. You know, when I was making the film, someone told me that there's, and I, I you know, I don't know how true this is, but someone told me that there's still lawsuits from the seventies flying around and people trying to school the school district. And then, you know, someone recommended to me, I, someone saw the film, um, you know, she was a lawyer and she saw the film and she said, you know, New York city, schools are great you know i help parents all the time sue the school district and we have a favorable outcome for the parents so i asked like where did the children go and she's like well you know there's a school a private school that's only for children with down syndrome and i was like i think you just missed the point the yeah film. exactly <laughs> right <laughs> this is all about integrated it's, it's not about like winning a lawsuit or trying to get money or whatever, you know, favorable outcome, whatever the definition of that is to an attorney, but to be like, Oh yeah. And they'll just end up in the same setting they were in anyway. It It's wild to me. It's, it's just, it I'm, it's uh, it just goes to show like, even though we've made a lot of progress that there's still so much more progress to be made. And I just appreciate someone like you and, and your wife and everyone that you guys interviewed and met with and befriended through the documentary who look at it and say, yeah, there's a lot of change that needs to happen. And yeah, it feels like these systems 
are set up to keep the change from happening, but that's not stopping you guys from actually doing the work, um, which I think is so incredible. And it's, it's what, it's what we, we need. Um, so, you know, obviously for me, you know, as a, as a storyteller and a parent, like knowing that I think the last thing you shot was in 2020, you know, that was almost three years ago. Um, how, how is Emilio doing? What, what's the status of Emilio and what's your guys' status right now and in all that you're doing to advocate for him? Yeah, it's, it's crazy to think that there's been a whole pandemic between, you know, kind of finishing <laughs> up the film <laughs> right? and now, but Emilio is six years old now. Um, I think the film leaves off, he's four and a half, four, four and a half. Um, uh, he's six years old now. He's going to kindergarten. He's fully included. Um, over the pandemic, we crossed the river and we moved to New Jersey. Um, we had a second child, uh, so he has oh, a sister. Oh, congratulations. Now. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, his sister is absolutely infatuated with him they're the besties um and uh he's doing great as we speak right now he's uh in dance class he loves dancing he loves yes. music um so he's you know what do you want for your children at the end you want them to be happy and right. i look at Emilio and i see a really happy kid and you know i, I can't ask for more than that mm. That's beautiful. I, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, seeing a smile on your child's face is everything. You know, it's it's everything. And I, I'm just I'm so grateful for you guys and all the work that you're doing. And I would I want to encourage everyone who's listening to go out, check out Forget Me Not. Where where can they find the film? Where's the best place for them to to screen it? So there's uh, quite a few options, you know, in this digital world, uh, you know, so I think you can go to forgetmenotdocumentary.com where you can find out you could buy the dvd or you can find where it's streaming but um it's on amazon prime it's on uh 2b which is actually free there's some advertising while you watch the film so um you know we thought that was important so everyone can have access to the film and uh yeah and then it's uh, there's also educational dvds for different professors that might want it for their school um so it's it's definitely out there and i think there will be more streaming options in the future and also there's going to be an international release as well amazing and you guys are on social media as well so people can can follow you on instagram and everywhere else yep forget me not documentary is our uh tag amazing i'll put links to all of that in in the episode notes so that way people can find you and check out the film uh olivier this has been an absolute pleasure you know our mission here at the greatest stories never told is to to shine a light on, on the stories that historically have, have not been shared. And, and that's what we're on the mission to do. And that's clearly the mission that you are on and, and the mission that you saw through so beautifully to completion with For, forget me not. And um, just want to congratulate you on that and grateful to be connected to you and want to wish you and the, the, your family the very best. Thanks so much for having me. And thanks for sharing your story as well. Of course. Awesome. Thank you so much, Olivier. Uh, wishing you the best and uh, we'll talk soon. Take care. I need to say a huge, huge thank you again to Olivier for coming on, sharing his story and shedding a light on something that I think is so vital for us to know about, for us to talk about and for us to start taking very real steps to change. I also need to say a huge thank you to you for listening to the episode. If you are new to the show, again, please make sure you click that subscribe button, smash it, tap it, whatever you're into. Also, please follow us on social media. We are at Never Told Pod on all of the platforms. You can also follow me at Danny Jordan on Instagram. 
Instagram. And if you're really enjoying what we are doing here with the show, please take a moment right now to rate and review. Those ratings and reviews do so much to ensure that more people discover our show and become a part of the community that we are building with the greatest stories never told. Until next week, sending you all of my best, and I am so looking forward to speaking with you all again soon.